chapter 5. If you were here last Sunday, you know that we began the first part of a two-part series on what some might call the indicative of the gospel and the imperative of the gospel. Some might call it justification and sanctification. I've chosen to call it Christian, uh, Christian identity, which is what we looked at last week, and now Christian responsibility, which is what we'll look at this week. So turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading with verse 13. We'll read together down through verse 26. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. This is God's word. For you were called to, be, to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this joy, this honor of being in your presence, assembled in the name of Christ our King to worship. And as we come to the reading of your word and we hear what you have spoken to us, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our understanding, that you would help us to hear and to understand and make your word productive in our lives Pray that you would be with me, that I might articulate your word in a way that you would use and that would ultimately transform each of us into the people that you've called us to be. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were here, we looked at Christian identity. We saw how that Paul first gives the indicative of the gospel, who we are in Christ. This week, we're looking at Christian responsibility. Some of you may recall back in 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia took off on what was the 28th mission since the beginning of the space program back in the late 70s, early 80s. And shortly after takeoff, in fact, 82 seconds after takeoff, a piece of foam, rather short piece of foam, maybe three, three feet long, broke off from the fuel tank, an insulator, fuel insulator, and hit the left wing. 
They knew this. They saw it. They were aware of it. They didn't think anything of it. They continue on their mission. They remain in space for a period of, I believe it was 16 days. They stay and they dock at the International Space Station. They do what they were sent off to do. And then on returning to Earth, as they begin to re-enter the Earth biosphere, all seven lives are lost as the space shuttle implodes in a ball of infernal heat. Days following that, people scratched their heads. In fact, there was a formal inquiry made as to the nature of the accident, and what they discovered was that that small piece of foam breaking off from the fuel insulator compartment, striking the left wing, allowed enough heat to attack the wing to, uh, in, a, in a very vulnerable location to where the, the, the shuttle itself could not withstand it and ultimately caught fire. But what was even more astounding as they began to do research is this was not the first time that it happened. In fact, it had happened numerous times throughout the missions that the Columbia Space Shuttle, shuttle took. That first time it happened, they knew that it was dangerous and they were investigating it and were planning to do something about it, but the cost was so great and there appeared to be no immediate consequence, so they dismissed it and they continued on several more missions. Well, the final report that was produced, the report coined a phrase which is known as the normalization of deviance. And according to the report itself, normalization of deviance can be defined accordingly. When people within the organization become so much accustomed to a deviant behavior that they don't consider it as deviant, despite the fact that they far exceed their own rules for elementary safety. Risk management knew once upon a time that it was dangerous, but they turned a blind eye. And ultimately, the report concluded that it was a result of deviant behavior, of normalization of deviance. Now, in many ways, the Apostle Paul, when he's addressing the church of Galatians, is addressing the normalization of deviance. Because he begins by informing them how that they have believed the false gospel. And we covered this last week, how that they have believed the wrong thing about their qualification before God. That they are accepted by God on the merit of nothing other than the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. And so if you were here, we saw last week how that it's the Christ, the cross plus nothing, that is the merit, the means of our justification before God. And then immediately after these verses, Paul addresses the jugular of the issue. He addresses the very heart of the issue when he says, don't get me wrong. Just because our justification before God has nothing to do with us does not mean that we have no responsibility in the Christian life. And so then he proceeds on to spill the next 14 verses or so, the next 13 verses, into talking about what has become, in my estimation, one of the greatest challenges to the church in the 21st century, at least the greatest challenge in my life, and I would, I would uh, uh, venture to say that if you're honest, probably yours as well, which is a tendency of the human mind, the tendency of the human behavior to gravitate towards a normalization of deviance. Those things in our lives that we know they shouldn't be there. The sin that we know besets us, but because we see no immediate consequence, we're willing to allow it to slide. Ultimately, that was the downfall of the Columbia shuttle disaster. A normalization of deviance. 
Paul knew that a mistaken understanding of grace would lead to a normalization of deviance. And so basically, he conveys to the church of Galatia something that we can summarize in three points this morning. The first is that freedom creates responsibility. The second, that our appetite determines our actions. And the third, that belonging enables resistance. So we're going to unpack these 13 verses uh, this morning. First, freedom creates responsibility. Paul seems to deviate somewhat off topic in the first verse when he says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. After all, we saw last week how the Apostle Paul defined freedom as the spirit-enabled ability to serve Christ in Christ alone. Freedom as not being free to do whatever you and I choose to do, because after all, that makes us the master, but rather freedom to do and freedom to delight in doing what Christ commands. That is truly being free. That's the freedom of the Christian life. That's the heart of the Christian's identity. But then he goes on to address Christian responsibility, and he says that such freedom does not let us off the hook. Rather, it makes us responsible. And so if we were to look at this chapter and divide it in theological terms, we would say that our justification before God is unilateral. It's what theologians have called monergistic, coming from two Greek words, mono and ergistic, which suggests energy. It's where we get the word energy, suggesting that our justification is ultimately the energy of God and God alone. But our sanctification, which is where Paul is leading us now, is synergistic, meaning that it is God's divine grace enabling us, but humans have a responsibility. We Christians have a responsibility. And ultimately, our greatest responsibility is to guard against the normalization of deviance in our own lives. And so Paul shows us how we are to do that. Freedom creates responsibility. According to verses 13 through 15, we are responsible to two parties. First, we are responsible to God. That's implied, even if it's not explicitly stated. He says that we have been called to freedom, brothers. Who is the caller? Who is the one who does the calling? It is God. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then he goes on to point them back to the law, the very law that last week we learned cannot justify us. The very law that if we seek to obey in order to qualify us as children of God, then we have mistaken the purpose, the meaning of the gospel itself. But yet he does not throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. He brings the law back in and he says that we have a responsibility as Christians, first and foremost to God who has redeemed us, and secondly to our neighbor. And he summarizes the whole law as did Christ. He said it is fulfilled in one word or one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he does not allow for self-centered Christianity. He does not allow for an autonomy. He does not allow for for the human condition to be controlled by our individual desires. But rather, he says, we should first submit to God and love him. And secondly, we have a responsibility to our neighbor. And then he goes on to show that the ultimate downfall of self-sufficiency is that we devour one another. If we are independent 
And if we cherish our independence to the extent that we exploit our brother or our sister in Christ, then ultimately we devour one another. And so we are free, but this freedom obligates us to love our neighbor as ourself. This freedom obligates us to submit ourselves to God. I must point out that in verses 13 through 15, Paul is not talking about who we are. He's no longer talking about a Christian identity. That has been put to bed, put to rest in the previous section of Galatians. In verses 1 through verse 12, he spends a lot of time. In fact, even before he breaches the topic of Christian responsibility, he spills much ink in affirming our identity. Because he first establishes the reality of who we are before he tells us what we are to do. Legalism, by the way, does the exact opposite. Tells us that we need to do something to become something. Christianity, the gospel, tells us that we have become something, therefore we should do something. Think about it in terms of the ancient Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. They were first redeemed from Egyptian slavery, and then they were led to Sinai where they were given the law. The law in no instance, Old Testament or New Testament alike, was ever meant to save God's people or to redeem God's people. It was never the basis of adoption. God's grace, his election, was always the means of adoption, Old Testament, New Testament alike. But then the law was given to instruct God's people to live as they are, as those who have been adopted by God. And so Paul takes us back there when he references the law here in verse 14. But then he goes on to make an application, an application that ultimately I suggest that we can make today as well, and that is that if we misunderstand grace, if we misunderstand our responsibility as Christians, then ultimately we become prey to a normalization of deviance. I suggest that one of the greatest challenges, which is supplemental to the normalization of deviance facing the church in the 21st century America is something that I, something that all of us subliminally are subjected to, and that is allowing the relativistic culture around us to so influence us that we preach it and teach it as if it were grace. One of the greatest challenges, in addition to the normalization of deviance, and part and parcel with it, is that oftentimes in the evangelical church in America, we have a subliminal acceptance of relativism that masquerades as grace. In other words, grace means I can do whatever I want to do. Because I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter what I do. The, the justification, my justification before God, is something that is independent of uh, my sanctification. And the reality is, the Apostle Paul connects the two so intricately that even if for theological convenience we like to divide the two, it's really impossible to do so. That's why James in his epistle says, you show me by your, your works through your faith, and ultimately that faith without works is dead. Because in the Christian life, yes, our justification is, mon is monergistic. It is a result of God and his unilateral involvement in our life. But sanctification is also a result of God's grace, but it is synergistic, meaning we have a responsibility. So Paul spends time in verse 21 talking about the deeds 
of the flesh. And then he goes on to talk about the deeds of the Spirit and ultimately what he is characterizing is behavior of those who live dominated by their own desires versus the behavior of those who live in a manner that Christ and Christ crucified shapes, fashions, and modes our desires. But he says in verse 21 that those who do such things, those who give in to the flesh, those who allow the freedom that we have in Christ as an opportunity to live any way that we want, ultimately that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. He makes that point very clear. Now you can pause there and say, wait a minute, didn't you just say last week that our identity is not based on our actions, not based on our deeds? Then how can you say, Paul, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, he answers that question in a very subtle way by attributing the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. You see, in Greek, the, the two words that Paul uses to distinguish between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, one is active and the other is passive. The active word is works. We see this in verse um, 19 where he says, the works of the flesh are evident. And if you were to look at that word in Greek, it is active, meaning that it is a verb. It is something that you do. It has a tense. It has a voice. It has a mood. It is a word expressing action, action that ultimately revolves from our hearts. But then he points to the fact that if we walk in the, the Spirit, in verse 22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Now, what's the difference there? Well, the fruit in the Greek is a passive word. In fact, even in English, it is a noun. A fruit is something that a tree produces out of its essence. An apple tree does not produce figs. A fig tree does not produce apples. And so Paul answers the question, the allegation made by some, how can you say that if you do the things that you just mentioned, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God? He points us back to the reality that a good tree will not produce bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. But rather, if the Spirit is leading our lives, if we are led of the Spirit, then we produce the fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, it is the work of God in us. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. That's why Paul establishes, again, this very reality in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, when he tells the church of Philippi that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, let's look at the second point that Paul is making here, and that is that appetite determines action. One of the points that I made last week when we were looking at Christian identity is that the spirit-enabled faith working through love is fundamental to Christian identity. And that was a mouthful. We dissected it a bit last week, but I'm going to pick it up again this week because Paul fleshes that out more in this part of Galatians. Paul states in verses 16 through 17, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now note that Paul is talking to Christians. And he does not say that once we become believers, the flesh disappears. He does not say that the desires are not there. He does not act as if there are no competing appetites for those who are in the kingdom of God. But what he does point to is the reality that appetite determines action. And this is ultimately where today, as in every other generation, the challenge to Christian responsibility is played out. 
Because the reality is that as Christians, as those whom according to what Paul said in the first part of Galatians chapter 5, we saw it last week, those who have an identity as being adopted by God, those who have been given a new identity in Christ, we have the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in us. But also, we have an appetite for lesser things. And so the decision revolves around what we do, which appetite we feed. Our appetite determines our actions. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to each other. And they keep us, this battle oftentimes keeps us from doing those things that we wish to do. But what does it mean to walk in the spirit? What does it mean to nurture a godly appetite, a spirit-led appetite? Well, in short, it is sanctification. So we'll bring in again this theological term. And our own confession, our Westminster Confession, defines sanctification as the dominion of sin over our bodies being increasingly destroyed. So that sinful desires are weakened and put to death and the believer is strengthened or enabled to practice true holiness. Holiness without which, according to Christ, no man shall see God. So what road do we have? If that is sanctification, if that is what walking in the Spirit looks like, then what responsibility do we have? After all, it's not the Spirit of Christ working in us, the one that's responsible, the motivating force behind our changed actions, our changed behavior, our changed lives. Yes, but we are not machines. We have a responsibility too. We have a responsibility to feed the godly appetite. We have a responsibility to walk in the Spirit. Every day we are confronted with an endless array of opportunities to fill our thoughts and our time with things that engender within us either a hunger for holiness or for things that create and panter to a hunger for sin and self-satisfaction. Every day we are bombarded with enticing appetizers. And often in our daily life, the appetizers for the flesh far exceed the appetizers for the spirit. It is an intentional action for the believer to take time through the means of grace, through prayer, through reading God's word, through meditating on who we are, our Christian identity. It is an exercise of discipline to feed our holy appetite. But what we hunger for ultimately determines what we do. This past week, my family and I were in a restaurant that's family friendly. In fact, it's uh, part of a place that we were able to stay at there in Gatlinburg that uh, caters to families. And everyone in the restaurant was either a parent of young children or a grandparent of young children. And we happened to be sitting at a table that was right next to the TV. And it was on a harmless channel, um, but an advertisement for the Cartoon Network came on, and I was appalled. I mean, there in a family-friendly environment was a cartoon character doing a lewd sexual act that assaulted even my adult experience. Trish and I quickly told our children, we shielded them by asking them to, you know, pointing out something else that was 
located another place in the restaurant for them to look at, and thankfully their eyes were avoided. But that is one example of ways that we as individuals are bombarded on a daily basis. When we are bombarded by those things, we see them as harmless. Just as the engineers, just as the astronauts who worked on the space shuttle Columbia were able to continue a 16-day long mission and think, well, nothing happened, therefore I must be okay, just as the risk management personnel at NASA was able to track at least 10 different trips when a, a, a piece of foam broke off, damaging some compartment of the shuttle in the past, but there was no immediate consequence. Therefore, they were able to develop a tolerance for destructive behavior. And more often than not in the Christian's life, when we find ourselves sliding down the slippery slope, it's not because of one step. It's because over a period of time, we have allowed the normalization of deviance. We have allowed the flesh and its appetites to be enticed and entangled in the things that this world has to offer. And we have muted the desire of the spirit within our life to transform us into the people that proclaim the goodness and holiness of God. Most churches across America would quickly dwindle If holiness, not some form, some outward sign, not some demonstration of a carnal, superficial holiness, but true holiness was understood and proclaimed because it is offensive to our sensitive nature. We have allowed ourselves to become so complacent, so comfortable with the mundane, so comfortable with the forbidden that we see it as harmless. And it's not until, much like the Space Shuttle Columbia, we find ourselves imploding in an infernal ball of heat that we ask ourselves the question, how did I get here? Beloved Christian, me, you, everyone in this building, there is no one exempt from the normalization of deviance. There is no one exempt from petting sin and acting as if it will not destroy us. That's why Paul gives the clear responsibility here in Galatians when he says, walk in the spirit that you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. There is a responsibility that you and I have as Christians to walk in accordance with who we are. That show, that song, that jovial discussion, you may laugh at it, it may all seem tolerable, even acceptable, perhaps harmless. Then when our desires have led us down the paths that we would have once never thought possible, we find little, little willingness to restrain them and we are left wondering why. The answer is the normalization of deviance. I suggest that as the American church perched on the first quarter of the 21st century, prays for, longs for revival, longs for a restoration of morality and values within our country that is a hallmark perhaps of a bygone era, as we long for a day when lives are truly transformed. I suggest that until our desire for holiness is greater than our desire for hipness, we will cease to be a relevant voice within our culture 
and within our society. Because what Paul is talking about here is not whether the church would continue to exist, but rather whether we would continue to be salty. Paul knows that if a church walks according to the flesh, then ultimately we are exemplifying, proclaiming to the world around us that we are no better than they. And in essence, that is true. We're all equal at the feet of the cross. But in principle, we are sons and daughters of God. And God is holy. The only attribute of God in all of Scripture that is repeated three times is holy, holy, holy. And so as children of God, our desire should not be to walk as close to the edge as we can without falling off. But our desire should be to be as holy as we can and still remain on earth. Point three, belonging enables resistance. So what is the answer? What does Paul say is the answer to walking in the Spirit? What does Paul say is the answer to feeding our spiritual appetite instead of our carnal, fleshly appetite? Ultimately, he says, we have to look to whom we belong. He says this in verse 24. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Belonging to Christ... This is where he goes back to the indicative, back to our identity as Christians. Belonging to Christ enables you and I to resist. It enables us, empowers us through grace, through the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It enables us to resist the desires of the flesh and to flee to Christ, to flee to his grace, to cast ourselves upon his mercy. The key to sanctification, which is ultimately what we, the theological term for walking in the Spirit, is living out in practice what is true in principle. We are children of God. And we are called, we are responsible to God and to our fellow man to live as if we are who we are. Now, this does not mean that the desire itself The appetite itself, the presence of it, is indicative of someone who does not belong to Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. But rather, whether one surrenders to a spirit-led or flesh-incited appetite. In verse 17, Paul states that the war between the flesh and the spirit keep you, keep me from doing the things that we want to do. If there is the desire to do good but failure to do it, then the desire itself is proof of belonging. However, and this is key, the desire itself will never be enough for those who belong to Christ. We will relentlessly pursue holiness to the ever-increasing detriment of the flesh. To actively crucify the flesh, which is what Paul commands us to do, he says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To actively do that very quickly means two things. One, that we acknowledge that Christ owns us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, when he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? By the way, he was talking to a, a, a church in Corinth which thought it was okay to 
participate in idolatrous temple prostitution on Saturday and come to church on Sunday. And he tells them, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's the indicative. That's the reality. What's the imperative? Even in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, the imperative is glorify God in your body. Feeding the spirit-led appetite is something we do both actively and passively. And that's the second way that we crucify the flesh. Actively by engaging in the means of grace. Church attendance, reading God's word, studying the word, praying, the disciplines of grace, things that we talk about that at times seem so laborious. Those things feed our holy appetite. And it's also passive by rejecting those entertainments, conversations, and behaviors that incite sinful desires. See, for many of us, we, we, we are so self-conscious of legalism because some of us come from backgrounds where legalism was the gospel that was presented to us that we go to the other extreme and we focus so much on our justification that we fail to recall the teaching of Paul that we have a God-given responsibility in our sanctification. That we are to play an important part in resistance because we belong to God. So ultimately, to recap, the Apostle Paul is saying that we have a Christian responsibility that can be summarized both in the fact that freedom engenders responsibility. That we have been set free by Christ and that freedom makes us responsible to God and to one another. Secondly, that our appetite determines our actions. If we feed our, our sinful appetites, then we will engage in sin. If we feed our holy appetites, then we will long for righteousness. And third, that belonging to Christ enables us, empowers us, if you will, to resist. In the town I grew up in, it's a part of the Ozark Plateaus, Plateau, and it's just outside the Ozark Mountain Range. And there's an old story, an old folktale that um, I grew up hearing as a boy, somewhat corny, but it brings home the very point that the Apostle Paul makes in this text. It's about a young Indian boy who was walking up one of the Ozark Mountains, probably the Tomsok Mountain. It's the largest mountain in the Ozark Mountain range, and there's actually a difference in temperature when you get to the top of the mountain versus when you're at the foot of the mountain. But the story goes that this little Indian boy was walking up to the top of the mountain, and when he reaches the top, he sees a rattlesnake there on a rock in the sun, but it's so cold that the rattlesnake is beginning to die. And the boy looks at the rattlesnake and he feels sorry for him. But then he realizes that's a rattlesnake. But then he feels sorry for him. So he picks him up and he starts to put him in his pocket. And he looks at the snake and says, if I do this, you won't bite me, will you? And the rattlesnake says, no, I'm dying. You're saving my life. So the boy puts it in his pocket and he begins to climb down the mountain. A little further down he goes, he gets warmer. And he feels some stirring in his pocket. He looks down in his pocket and he says, no, you're not going to bite me, are you? The rattlesnake says, no, no, I wouldn't do that. 
Climbs a little further down, and there's more movement in his pocket. He looks in, and he says, you're not going to bite me, are you? The snake says, no, you saved my life. Finally, he gets to the base of the mountain. At this point, the snake is fully alive, fully active, his tail shaking. Boy, we can hear the rattle even from the inside of his pocket. He looks at the snake, and he says, you're not going to bite me, are you? And the snake says, you knew what I was when you picked me up. For many of us, Normalization of deviance is accepting something so harmful because we truly don't believe it's harmful. Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace the grace that has saved us, that justifies us, the grace that enables us and empowers us to be crucified with Christ, to live as he instructs, as he commands. Father, we are a fallen people. We are a sinful people. We are a wretched, poor, blind, and miserable people. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Empower, forgive, cleanse, and justify, sanctify, by your grace, by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, if you will, as we worship.